Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone, and welcome to Real People where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today's very cool episode is with Robert Turchek, one of the world's most prolific creators of interactive content, a groundbreaking pioneer in digital media since the early 1990s and author of Vaporized, Solid Strategies for Success in a Dematerialized World. I sat down with Robert in the lobby of the Intercontinental Hotel in Adelaide, South Australia, while on his visit from Los Angeles. He was in town in his role as creative director for Hybrid World Adelaide, a digital entertainment and technology event launched in 2017 that explores the future of a hybrid world where the real and digital worlds collide and ultimately evolve. Robert has held creative director president and other senior executive roles for Sony Pictures, MTV, Oprah Winfrey Network and now advisory group General Creativity. He has worked across media platforms from web, wireless, interactive television, games consoles and digital satellite and cable TV and has driven digital media innovation well before digital and the internet were concepts as we know today. Robert talks with passion at how hard it was initially to convince media executives to embrace digital as it was against what they knew and accepted as the way media worked. He shares his story growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, curious about everything and how the rough economy in Cleveland at the time has shaped his drive for the need for businesses, cities and towns to seek constant reinvention and renaissance. We discuss what can be learnt from businesses such as Apple, the Dollar Shave Club and Burberry, and the importance of blind spot coaching and seeing opportunities in the periphery, and working with the newly informed and highly empowered consumer. Robert was very generous with his time and his insight and experience and observations. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning... Welcome. Uh, th- thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Robert. Um, I'm going to start, like in all of the interviews we've had so far, uh, really starting off where, um, thinking back to you as a child, so what, what were you like when you were a 10-year-old boy? <laughs> when I was a 10-year-old boy, I was curious about everything, uh, not just things that were technological or scientific, but also artistic things and natural things. I used to ride my bike into the woods, and then I would go for hikes and climb and things. Um, so I like to check out everything. Yep. I was curious about the world. So you, you, what, you played with things, pulled things away yeah. apart? Yeah. yeah, my brothers and I built tree houses and forts, and uh, I have big brothers, so uh, I had plenty of company. Yeah. I was part of the Boy Scouts, so I spent yeah. time outdoors. I played sports. Um, those are all the things that, yeah, I had, I had a very uh, well-rounded youth, I suppose. Uh, yeah. And uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. Tell me about Cleveland. Cleveland's an industrial city on the Great Lakes in the Midwest in the United States. And in the 1970s, when I was a child, it was hitting rough times, uh, as most of the big industrial cities in the U.S. were at the time. Since then, it's had a chance to reinvent itself uh, and revive itself a bit. Yeah, yeah. So how 
how was the sort of I guess the, the the struggling city when you were a boy? Did that that did that make who you are today? Well, I did a couple of things. So um, that transition from the industrial economy to whatever comes next, that's the entire focus of my career. And I think I did get some inspiration there because it was so desperately needed. That, that idea of a renaissance or reinvention was so desperately needed in the Midwest in the 1970s and early 1980s. So I think, I think growing up in that context definitely shaped my outlook on new technology and innovation and how to reinvent things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been fascinating in these interviews we've had so far of going back to that sort of childhood moment. And it has yeah. this nice peacefulness of, of people kind of reflecting on that. But also the child is often really, relatively similar in many ways. or it's been The, in, the child is the parent to the man. Yeah, there, there we go. So the other thing that happened to me when I was a child is my family were immigrant family from Eastern Europe. I... Um, my grandparents all came from Yugoslavia, the part of Yugoslavia called Slovenia, which is, of course, now a separate country, um, up in the Alps, in the Julian Alps, uh, in, uh, in between Italy and, and, um, and Austria. And um, the neighborhood I grew up in was, uh, was full of people like that. So it was, a very, um, it was a very Slovenian neighborhood, and I grew up uh, learning all the folk songs and the folk traditions and so forth. Um, and I think this changed my outlook as well, because unlike most Americans, I had a more international perspective. My grandparents would go back to Europe whenever they could. And then my parents, my mother and father, were jet setters in the 1960s and 1970s. And so every year they took an exotic trip someplace um, far away. You know, so places like Thailand or Portugal or parts of Latin America, where most Americans weren't visiting in those days. Uh, now, of course, those are popular tourist destinations. But mm-hmm. that wasn't the case in the 70s. That was quite exotic. And so my parents would come back from these trips with great stories and photos and things to tell us. And that inspired me as well. And I have spent half of my life working internationally. So again, I think it had a profound influence yeah, on me. Yes, that's, that's fascinating. So if you look at you as a boy and you now, what are sort of like a few critical steps sort of... Of, uh, of evolution? Yeah, the evolution to so the I man good, I see in front of me. I had so. the good fortune to go to excellent private schools. Um, and I think that it's a very good investment Uh, to spend what you can afford on a university and a a college and um, because I had that international outlook I studied languages and I ended up studying in Germany and I ended up uh, after college with a Fulbright teaching fellowship that sent me back to Germany where I taught English and art and I studied art and German Um, that was a had a profound influence on me as well first of all at a young age, to go abroad means you have to find your foot. You have to have to find your feet. Mm-hmm. I remember very clearly. Uh, my German wasn't so good, but I had to call for an apartment. In those days, before the internet, of course, the way you did an apartment search is Sunday morning would have all the listings and the classified ads, and everybody who's looking for an apartment would gather at the newsstand just when the newspapers came out, and then you'd you know, get, get a coffee shop and and have a pen, and you'd circle all the places you could afford, and then you'd have to find a public phone and stand in line, or or hopefully you could get your own booth with a whole bunch of Deutschmarks and start dialing. But I was living in Berlin, and there were a lot of foreign people coming in, particularly people who were stateless were coming into Berlin for asylum. Local residents weren't so interested in renting to those kind of people, and my German was so bad that they would hang up on me because they would think I was an <laughs> asylum seeker without even me having a chance for me to explain myself. Uh, but one day, I uh, connected with the owner of the, of the property, and she said, where do you come from? And I said, I come from America. And she said, where in South America? I said, no, no, I come from the USA. And she said, oh, I'm Americana. 
Ich behalte sie für Ihnen. I'll hold the apartment for you. <laughs> and so then um, she was holding the apartment. It turned out to be a fabulous apartment in the Schöneberg district in Berlin. Um, I had magical experiences. And I've discovered that if you go out in the world and you try to connect with people, you can usually connect at a level that you would never expect. That's right. Um, but the main thing is that you've got to get out there and go yeah. try. So it sounds like taking those risks and really being resilient yeah. and backing yourself. Yeah, yeah that, that's really fascinating. So when did technology come into your life? So I, was, I was always interested in computers. So when I was in high school, we had a computer science lab. I, I can't say I was very good at it. I'm not a computer programmer. Uh, but we were exposed to that. And then in college, I was in college at the time, right when the first Macintosh computers came out, and I had one. And uh, my college was wired up with a network that was all new in those days. After college, after finishing uh, my Fulbright grant, because I knew how a computer worked, I got a job in the film industry. And most of the time, when you start in the film industry, you're either you know driving a van or parking a van or doing some kind of miserable task like carrying heavy lights up staircases or something. In my case, though, because I had that skill, they put me in the office and I could type contracts and screenplays. And because I was in the office, I got to talk to the directors. And because I was a painter, I always carried my slides with me, my artwork. And all the directors got to see my artwork. And gradually, very quickly, I got out of being a very entry-level position, and I became an art director. And that was the beginning for me of combining art and technology. Uh, and so I used computers. I was a painter. I could paint sets. I learned all about post-production special effects. I learned how to do special effects on a set. And there's an element of technology in all that work. And so for me, it was really fun to go from painting in a studio and making a picture that maybe, if I were lucky, 100 people would see, to putting something on television that 22 million people would see. This is a big change for yeah, me. Yeah. And it got me excited. So very quickly, I got onto the track of becoming a TV director. And by the time I was 25, I was beginning to direct television. Uh, small things at first, TV commercials and music videos. Uh, but then gradually, I worked for MTV, music television. And um, I, I, I got much better. And I worked on a lot of big events. Uh, I ended up being the creative director for some rock and roll concerts, the, the largest rock concert in the history of the Soviet Union. Uh, 300,000 people in the Lenin Stadium in 1989. And um, I was also the creative director for the Steel Wheels Tour, the Rolling Stones yeah. Tour in the U.S. And then um, MTV contacted me and said, hey, we're launching a network in Asia. Would you like to go be the creative director for that? And I thought, what fun. Now, not just designing one spot or one show, I can actually think about an entire network. Yeah. And that struck me as a really cool idea. Yeah. So I was the creative director for MTV Asia, and I launched MTV in Hong Kong and China, Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, the Philippines, um, India, and all over Southeast Asia, all the way over to Egypt and, and Israel. Yeah. Uh, it was a phenomenal experience for me, and yeah. I spent half of that time on the road shooting uh, with a small crew in the streets of India or up in the jungles of Chiang Mai, or sometimes we shot in a typhoon, in the middle of a typhoon in, uh, in Taiwan, and it was an extraordinarily fun experience. But that experience also taught me a great deal about technology because the, um, the new satellite systems we were launching in the early 90s were all digital. So when I returned to the United States in 1993, I sat down with my management at MTV and I said, we should get into digital technology. And the heads of the other TV channels at MTV Networks didn't understand. They looked at me and they said, wait, we're trying to run a cable channel here. We, we have no interest in digital technology. Why are you showing us computers and video games? I said, because that's where our audience is going. Young boys are playing these things. We need to pay attention to it. And they were simply not interested. They wanted to focus on television. 
I felt very strongly that the right thing to do was to migrate, maybe continue doing TV, but migrate with the audience to these other devices, the, the internet, and computers, and, uh, and video games. But there was a lot of resistance. A lot of people felt like that wasn't part of what a TV company should do. Yeah, yeah. But um, even the word digital would have been we didn't even have that word. back then. Yeah, yeah, we didn't even have that word at that time. It was, you, know, you have to remember, in 1993, your computer was a black screen with a green cursor blinking, right. right? And video games were 16-bit, you know, a Sega Genesis That's or right. a Super Nintendo system. They weren't very good quality uh, images. And so for TV people, they looked down on that. That was, less, that was lesser than what they were doing. Uh, I looked at it differently. I always look at things from the point of view of a, of a consumer, the end user, the audience. They see something that TV people don't see. They saw a chance to have something that would respond to them. You know, you would do some input and it would respond to you. It would engage you in a different way that television could never do and still can't do. And I thought it was important for entertainment people to understand that. So um, I had the courage of my convictions. Yeah, But it I, sounds like you got that... that it's, it's almost like you're not looking, you, you weren't necessarily looking for career progression. No. You had this passion. Yeah. And you almost want to find that, like that Venn diagram of almost finding that center point yeah. of going, people need this, like the consumer or people need this. I'm passionate about this thing. Yeah. And that, exactly that conviction and that passion to actually find that, that beautiful sweet spot. Yeah, my, for me, the interesting point is the intersection between technology, art, science, and entertainment. Yeah. And that's a rich field. There's lots and lots of great stuff to do. And there still are new things coming. You know, now we have VR and AR and all these other new technologies coming. So it seems like a never-ending cornucopia of creative opportunities. Yeah, yeah. But many, many other people get settled into one particular niche or one particular format, and that's all they want to spend their lives doing. For me, I get too restless. I always want to move on. But when you look back at the... I, I, even, even now, I kind of look at these uh, big organizations wanting to innovate, but they're so big and they've got other incumbences either yeah. to hit uh, financial returns or KPIs. And I'm assuming back then they were going, well, we've got these, that, that, that's great to go down this digital route, but, but really we've got our, our returns to investors to sort of fit. How, how do you kind of fight against that almost locked-in so, thinking to almost future thinking, I guess is what well, you're Jason, saying. That's a great question because today that's actually a challenge every single company confronts. I've spent 25 years launching digital services. Initially that was all for entertainment and media companies. If you think back to the you know, mid-90s, every media company had to find a way to contend with digital media, not just the Internet, but digital platforms across the board. Well, today, that challenge is now being met by banks and insurance companies, manufacturers of all sorts, transportation companies, defense contractors. And these organizations are even more wedded to the physical industrial world of mm -hmm. the past, and they're even less capable of being nimble and reinventing themselves and so it's a real challenge. If you're the CEO of one of those businesses, imagine you have demands from shareholders to hit your quarterly objectives. If you miss the quarterly objective, the punishment comes swiftly and severely in the marketplace. So you can't afford to miss those quarterly goals. On the other hand, everybody knows that digital technology is where all the growth is going to happen. It doesn't matter what sector, whether we're talking about, you know, whether we're talking about cars or whether we're talking about housing, um, the future is all about adding value through digital services mm -hmm. that overlay real-world items. Well, if you're the CEO of that company or in the exec executive management team of any of those industries, how much of your time should be focused on these future digital services that are unknown, undefined, and unprovable? That's a very difficult mm -hmm. question to answer. The smart companies that I work with, when I, when I start working with the firm now as a consultant, I'll always sit down with the CEO and I'll ask them a few questions. And one of the questions I ask is, tell me about the threats on the horizon. And the smart CEOs will say to me, look, there are five competitors in my industry that matter. 
but I'm not concerned about them. I understand them. I know what their products are, and I know we can compete. What I need, I need your help with are the blind spots, the companies I'm not even aware of, the digital technology that's going to disrupt us, something that's going to hit us from the side. We'll never even anticipate it. I need your help to find those. And that's one of the things I do with my clients is blind spot coaching, where I teach them to broaden their view so that they see things in the peripheral vision that might be uh, might be an effect that, that they should be aware yeah, so of. Most, sorry, sorry. No, it's okay. Yeah. So most most disruption comes from outside of a sector and outside of a category rather than within the category. Is that, is that fair? Yes, yeah. but now, because we now have a good deal of experience, so now we have 20 years of examples of disruptive startup companies. That term, disruptive innovation, is 20 years old. So at this point, that concept is pretty well understood. So the second thing that I talk to the CEOs about is about their management of their team. And I asked them specifically about opportunities for people in their 30s. This is really important because at any established enterprise, large-scale business, typically you have vice president, senior vice president, and executive vice president slots that are filled with people in their 40s and 50s. Well, if you're an ambitious 35-year-old and you look, at the, you look up for advancement in the organization and you see all those seats are filled with people who are in their 40s and 50s, you realize you're going to be stuck there for 10 or 15 years before an opportunity for advancement opens up. That's too long. People want to move faster now. Those are people that the CEO needs to be concerned with. They need to create a new program to cultivate excellent people who are young, give them meaningful projects where they actually have a meaningful impact on the future trajectory of the business and some ownership in that business. If they don't do that, those young people are almost certainly going to hike out and start a competitive firm, and they know where the soft underbelly of the big old enterprise is, and they know exactly where to strike next. So it's really important for companies to be aware, not just of external competition that they're not familiar with, coming from a, you know, an unexpected quarter, but also from people in the organization who are frustrated, who have a vision for the future, and the senior management won't give them a platform to do it. They're going to hike out and go. They're going to go start a business. So if they feel like there's a lid on their head. Yeah, they're going to they just get frustrated reason. and it becomes toxic. And, and so it's almost like you know, every it, reason to go out and start it and prove it to themselves that they can they can launch yeah, a business. Yeah. You know. So it's almost that co- that culture of from the top top down and bottom up of of allowing those entrepreneurial entrepreneurial thirty um, something for example, execs to, to do something like a new revenue stream or a new way of doing it. Or yep. like they, they and every play. company does it different, right? So sometimes they'll set up a whole separate digital division. Sometimes they will do on, intrapreneurship where they try to start a company that doesn't always work that well. Um, but another way to do it is to simply say, that's a great plan. We can't focus on that here because we, we run this traditional business. However, we will set you up with a small amount of seed capital and some office space, and we will be your first customer. So now at least they they have a way to bring that fold that enterprise back in into the big business if they wish. Uh, what you don't we don't want to do is simply say get lost and go raise money and start your own company because then they're going to attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But the smart CEOs think about their businesses that way, and, and I love working on projects like that. Yeah. Who would well, what would you say is the single biggest consumer trend that you can sort of that are going to, is going to impact businesses moving forward? Right now? Yeah, right now. Well, the biggest trend that's happened in the last 10 years is that consumers are way more empowered and they have way more information. Uh, so you'll notice, for instance, it, retail is changing fast, as, a, as an example. In the United States last year, 2017, was a brutal year. Uh, 10 major chains closed forever. They went bankrupt. 10,000 shops were closed and 100,000 employees were laid off. So it was a bad year, the worst year since the 2008 financial crisis. Um, that doesn't mean that retail is failing. It certainly doesn't mean the end of retail. Sometimes people will speculate about that. What it means is that retail is being reinvented. 
And one of the most important things that's changed about retail is people don't go to stores for information anymore. Now, today, a consumer walks in and knows exactly what they want, and they know where to find it, and they know whether or not you have it in stock. They might even know, I was shopping the other day with someone who said, wait, I know they have these shoes here because there's two pair in stock in my size. And I was like, how did you find that? Well, because they had searched on the web on their phone just before we went into the shop. So the consumer comes in armed with um, information that in the past, you didn't have customers like that. You could, you could kind of shape the consumer's perception if you had savvy salespeople on the floor. So in the past, what I'd say is you had information asymmetry between consumers and their, and their sellers. Consumers had very little information. The sellers had a great deal of information about what was available, what was fair, what was a good price, and so forth. Today, your consumer is armed. They have the equivalent levels of information at their fingertips. Um, they can shop around. They can shop around right when they're inside your shop. They can actually look at competing offers. And so what that's done is it's equalized the balance of power a little bit. It's causing companies to have to think harder. They also have to increase the entertainment experience or just the, generally the consumer experience has to be better. I don't consider those bad things. The companies that have done this well are succeeding in retail. So the story of retail is not that everybody's failing. It's that certain companies are failing. Other companies are finding a way to deal with a newly empowered, highly informed consumer. And they're serving them. And they're serving them successfully. Yeah. Who, who do you see out there in terms of an organization, a large organization, let's, and we'll also talk about a small organization, who's doing it particularly well? Right now? Yeah, right now. Okay, well, I'm a huge fan of Apple. I know it's an obvious example to give away, um, but Apple does a very good job. So they charge uh, a premium for their d devices, and sometimes it's a really high, like 30% higher than competitive products, which is a little bit odd because the, you know, inside of the iPhone, the components are the same thing that you'd find in just about any smartphone. So the physical goods aren't really that significantly different. I happen to prefer the Apple ones, but you could make an equal argument for a Samsung phone or some other competitive phone. So what is the magic in Apple? Apple's really good at understanding how we use these devices and what we need next and how to provide that to us and how to provide it to us in a way that delights us so much that we won't switch out. So they've done that part really, really well. Then think about how their store fits into the equation. Their store is optimized for that customer. You go to the shop and you expect to be delighted. They never let you down. Um, so I think they are doing a very, very good job. And they've had a big impact, by the way, on regular traditional retail. You see you know, companies are trying to mimic their store designs. Uh, they're stealing that kind of like open light glass, uh, clear, transparent kind of shape or design. Uh, so I think Apple's had profound influence on the retail business. But I think part of their success is that they understand their consumers very, very well, and they serve them. They're really devoted to serving them. Another company that does this well, different business, Netflix. So everyone thinks Netflix is this like supremely successful business because somehow they were out there first. That's partly true. But what people fail to recognize is that Netflix invests millions in understanding consumer experience. It's the number one focus of the company, and it's an it's a obsession that's shared from the CEO's office all the way down through the whole organization. They know they're going to win or fail on the strength of their consumer offering, how well they serve their customers. Many other companies do not do this, and i got to tell you, it's a mystery to me why other companies don't look at that and say we should be just like that. Now what we're starting to see in the U.S. is fashion retailers are starting to bring technology into their shops. One of the reasons this is happening is um, um, Angela Arntz was the CEO of Burberry, um, and she decided that Burberry, you know, if you think about it, they're, 
a British raincoat maker that's like 150 years old. Not anyone's idea of a high-tech company. But she said, we're going to be technology first. We're going to be tech first. And so they were committed to doing everything with technology that they possibly could. 3D versions of their runway shows, simulations, virtual reality overlays, full-on digital catalog, digital customization. Everything they could, they could even think of to apply to that brand, they, they did. In a very short time, she made Burberry incredibly hip. Um, now, of course, she's working at Apple, working on their stores. Uh, but this is a good example of someone taking um, an old brand that we think we already know and we sort of think well, we know what it is. And in our mind, we have a place for that brand and it's, it's sitting on that shelf. But she was able to transform it and make it hip and current to a point where like rappers were wearing that Burberry plaid right. uh, like a baseball cap. And I was like, wait, when did rappers wear Burberry? When did that happen? That's an incredible tell. Mm. She managed to make that happen. What about at a small business site? What about at like a, 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 a not at such a, a grand size of Apple with their their cash and Burberry? You what? All right. So what else do you uh, see it doing it well, or just at a general sort of statement of how well smaller businesses are doing it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Let me think a little bit if I can find an example to share with you. Um, it's funny. The examples that are coming to mind to me are small businesses that start. Many of them get acquired. I'm thinking of Dollar Shave Club. You may or may not know about that that, firm. Um, But Dollar Shave Club basically sourced wholesale razors. I mean, there was nothing particularly special about the razors that they had. But they had an absolutely hilarious way of presenting it. They made these very, very snide videos that were fun to watch. So they had a sort of sassy brand. And then the the difference model, is the business model was what was different. So they, they went with a subscription business model. You subscribe to razor blades. And, you know, it makes sense because men typically change their razor blade once a week, maybe, you know, maybe less than that. Um, so for a relatively low fee, you would get a razor and then you get four blades and it was enough for the month. Mm-hmm. Well, what they did with that is they owned the entire customer. Once you switched to Dollar Shave Club, you were gone for good for Gillette and um, they could never get you back. And so, of course, what happens, one of those big companies had to buy Dollar Shave Club in order to stay relevant. Now we're starting to see that happen with um, meal kits that can be delivered, um, fashion kits that can be delivered. Now, these companies are relatively small and lean. One of the things they're using is machine learning to analyze behavior uh, from the customers, and they can sort the customers by just not just behavior but also by demographics. So they can start to predict what those customers are going to want. The, the point I'm trying to make is that those sound like high-tech things, machine learning, artificial intelligence. But the point I'm making is these are startup companies that don't mm. have a lot of resource. And they're using those technologies in order to be way more efficient and serve their customer even better. And as a result, they scale very quickly and they do become big businesses. Today, if you're launching a small company, you need to think carefully about how do I scale to be a global business? Ten years ago, that was a preposterous question. It would be impossible to answer. But today, because we have the cloud and everyone in the world has a smartphone, you actually can answer that question. There can be a strategy for your business to scale globally. One of the things we're doing at Hybrid World this week is we're showcasing Australian firms, many of them from right here in South Australia, that we believe have the potential to scale beyond the national barriers, beyond, beyond the national boundaries. Uh, last year when we did the first edition of Hybrid World, one of the pieces of feedback we got from the attendees is they said, oh, you're showing all these interesting companies from around the world, but Australian companies, we don't think that way. We, ju- we just think about our local market. We don't really think globally. And I thought about that afterwards. I was like, we should fix that. Let's deal with that next year. Let's do something about that. So what we're showcasing Australian yeah. companies this year. What about some of the, can you think, have you sort of seen any of the local companies as yet? Or 
I'm sorry. What? Have you seen any local companies as yet that are doing it doing here? it well? Yeah. Well, you, do you know there are 12 space companies here in Adelaide? It's amazing. Yeah. Like this is the space center for the <laughs> southern hemisphere. No one knows about it. Um, I'm, I'm continually stunned that the people in this fine town are so unaware of all the amazing innovation that's happening right next door, right here in Adelaide. And so uh, this city will become the space center for the southern hemisphere. Yeah. I assume this is sort of it, it, it matters less now than it's ever met, mattered before um, where you are. You can, you can build a, a global kind yes. of juggernaut from anywhere in the world. A small country town true. could do that. Is, that is true. Is that's that a really good point, Jason. And that's a really relevant point for people in Australia to bear in mind. The phrase you're looking for is placeless innovation. Placeless innovation. So in our minds, when we think of innovation, we tend to think of a place like Silicon Valley or Beijing, these innovation centers where there's a hub, research universities, venture capital, a pool of talent, and so forth. That's true. I mean, that is that makes those places very, very successful. But one of the things that's happening, thanks to cloud computing, is that you can be placeless. You can now operate a business from your home, and you can have employees all over the world. And many, many, many entrepreneurs are doing this. I know dozens of people who are doing this. Firms you wouldn't be aware of, you probably wouldn't know about, but they are, uh, their employees are based in dozens of different cities. If they need an office, they'll go to a WeWork and they'll rent this room or they'll rent a conference room or something. But typically, you don't even need to do that now. You can be an entrepreneur and start a business with a laptop and a smartphone, put all the infrastructure on your credit card. Could you do that from a small country town? Let's, let's say you're in middle of middle of Australia, small country town. It's an excellent question. people. What it takes is consistent, reliable, high-speed, low-latency networks. That's the key thing. That's why the Smart City Initiative here, the Gig City and the Tech Gig Network that the City of Adelaide is building is so vitally important. And everyone in this town should be familiar with that, business leaders in particular, but also academics and, and the people in the government. They should all be aware of and support that mission, to wire up the city with the fastest broadband in the Southern Hemisphere. That is how you're going to make the city compete on a global scale. It's so important to be aware of that. I don't think most people in Australia understand that Adelaide will be the best connected city in the Southern Hemisphere, not just in Australia in the Southern Hemisphere. That means that people in Adelaide, entrepreneurs in Adelaide, can compete at a global level. They can compete with companies in Silicon Valley or in the UK or in China. Many people haven't gotten that lesson. It hasn't sunk in, but we are going to deliver that message loud and clear on Monday and Tuesday of this week. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. So that, that, that technology infrastructure is just that, that, that critical one of being able to... The network is important. Yeah. Everybody always says, oh, you know, we're, I'll talk to you know, different people in different cities and they'll say, well, you know, we don't have great venture capital infrastructure here. There's no great investment or we don't have a great university or something. The news here is that you do have great research universities. You have four universities in this town who produce excellent product. They produce great, well-versed candidates and graduates who are candidates to work in jobs. Unfortunately, most of those people tend to move to the coastal cities, uh, you know, the big cities like Melbourne or Sydney, to find their career. That needs to get fixed. So what you need to have is an environment here that cultivates innovation, fosters startup businesses, supports them. And there's lots of initiatives underway to try to do that. I can't cover them all in this interview. No. Um, but that's what, that's what the, the Smart City initiative is uh, that, that's happening here. And, um, and so the... And, and there's, you know, now you have uh, tech stars here to cultivate and innovate businesses. There are incubators starting. Venture capital is starting to come. Uh, so once you have those components, all you really need to do is then have the good network, the high-speed yeah. network, and watch it. It'll take care of itself. Yeah, okay. You talked before about consumers being more empowered. Mm -hmm. You had a TED talk back in 2011, I think it was, about the uh, 
consumer narrative, people owning the yeah, narrative. Telling their own stories. That's yeah. right. Is Very that, good. Yeah. yeah. What's changed since since then? Is it is well? It you know, one of the points I made in that talk is that we haven't all mastered social media. That was precious. We as in humans, we like as in individuals. Most of us are new to social media, right? In 2011, that was true. So if you think about like the history of Facebook, um, you know, as recently as 2007, Facebook was still just barely opening up to the general public. Prior to that, they'd only been for university students at a few select colleges in the U.S. Um, so by 2011, social media was new for a lot of people. And you have to also reckon that a billion new users have come onto the Internet since that time. For them, all this stuff is new. So they don't have the savvy, they don't have the awareness, they don't know the etiquette, they don't know how to behave themselves. Now, to my dismay, we saw what a devastating impact that could have on a country um, in our last national election in the United States because we have a lot of unsophisticated users of social media and it's very easy to fool them with fake information, disinformation, propaganda, and so forth. Now, today, our social networks are flooded with that kind of garbage and unfortunately, it really does influence the way people think. And you see this in the kooky conspiracy theories and all the hate-filled rants and the crazy memes that are circulating and so forth. So I'd say that um, in, a, in certain respect, it's, it's like an entire nation of people who just all learn to drive. You wouldn't want to be on that road. You wouldn't want to be on that highway because there are a lot of reckless drivers, a lot of bad drivers. That's a little bit the state of the market with social media right now. There are a lot of people who haven't really learned the etiquette. They don't behave themselves particularly well and they're a threat to other, yeah. others. It's almost like um, that self-control and, and, that, and being able to trust and being able to filter the information, being able to question information. You know, it's the simplest stuff, right? Do unto others as you have them do unto you, yeah, yeah. right? Speak to people on social media the way you want them to speak to you. If you go off and rant and flame somebody and call them all sorts of nasty names, you're going to get the same thing coming back at you, maybe from someone else. You create the environment. You, know, you can create a heaven or a hell. It's entirely up to you. I try to keep it cool. I run a lot of discussion groups on the internet, and I try to keep it cool. Yeah. Is there a role of government and corporate to educate consumers and customers um, as to um, how to manage their privacy better? Or yeah, A lot of people say that. Here's the thing. Social media, if you're running it right, it's a conversation. Do I really need the government to tell me how to run a conversation? You know, Think about your life in the real world. Um, in the real world, if, if you behave like a buffoon, there are consequences. You're not going to have many friends. You're not going to get invited out much. Why would it be any different in a digital environment? Do we really need some you know, government, some nanny state to come in and tell us how to do that? You, you hear a lot of cries for that, and I understand it. It's a real problem right now. My sense is that we can police this stuff ourselves. Um, you, you certainly... You certainly wouldn't want to have the government intervening in your, car, your private conversations at home or at a cocktail party. Why would we want that on the internet? Uh, you know, on the other hand, let's be let's not kid ourselves. Right, the, the social media, not just in the U.S., in dozens of democracies around the world, has been under assault from adversaries using professional talent who are planting disinformation and deliberately deceiving people and you're running propaganda campaigns that are meant to sway elections and change the outcome of national elections. That's a genuine problem. And at that point, it does rise to the level of the state. Now, to my great dismay, in the United States right now, we have two parties. One party denies that this even occurred and doesn't take it seriously. It's a national outrage. And we should be united, not one party, but across party lines. We should be outraged because that's an assault on the integrity of our national elections. That's a different issue of a different character. 
a moment ago, I was just talking about conversations between people that you yeah, actually yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Now we're talking about national conversations. Those also happen in social media, and there it does rise to the yeah. level of national importance and a national concern. Yeah. When we get to like, things like um, with Cambridge Analytica, yeah. privacy has been brought more to the fore. I think a lot of consumers have probably suddenly gone, oh, we well, didn't even know that that was the case, and we trusted it. And I guess a lot of what we do, our, our research, is that there's that balance between... Um, the convenience and the speed of being able to do things digitally, mm-hmm. um, but maybe a willingness to kind of do away with some like privacy or some maybe some invasiveness. And, yeah, so now but, we're changing the topic a little bit. We're moving away yeah. from uh, propaganda and manipulation through social media to the question of what's my own sovereignty? Yeah. Or what is mine to protect and keep and what is taken from me? Uh, so unfortunately, advertising on the in, advertising is what pays for most of the internet. Um, most of the free content on the internet. And people like free, yeah. and people don't like to pay. What they tend to forget is you're always paying when you look at content. Uh, when you're consuming any kind of information, you're always paying. You're either paying money in the form of a you know a fee that you paid for a magazine or newspaper or a subscription fee, or you're paying attention. In the case of that, at paying attention, you're watching advertising. Now, in television, we understand this perfectly clearly. You know, you watch a show, but it's interrupted every few minutes with a little bunch of short narratives. They get you to buy something, and then you're back into the show. And we've managed to kind of evolve an economic system that supports TV, and people are okay with that today. I think they understand it. On the internet, again, it's very early days. Um, you know, this medium is barely 25 years old, and the commercial internet's only 20 years old. Um, the rules haven't been so clearly defined, and most people are pretty naive about it. Uh, your behavioral data is being mined on every website. On a big news website, you know, when a page loads slowly, um, it's not the content that's causing it to load. It's not the images. It's the fact that more than 100 other companies are sticking cookies in your browser. That's what takes so long to load a page. People are unaware of the great extent of surveillance capitalism. I say advertising is the original sin because uh, on the Internet because what it's done is it's completely corrupted the way we use people's data and the way we interview people and the way we track them and uh, follow them. Now people are starting to wake up to this. They're starting to become aware of that, and they're being very uncomfortable with it. So it's caused this kind of um, panic reaction. People are still largely unaware of the extent of the tracking that happens on the Internet, but they know they want it to stop, and they want less of it. It's sort of an ill-defined complaint. Now here's where it gets really freaky. As we start to merge the digital world and the real world, this is the whole point of hybrid world, is that we're merging the boundaries between the digital domain and the real world. It's starting to melt away. We're infusing digital technology into everything in daily life. That concept of surveillance capital is going to come with digital technology into our daily lives, into our robotic vehicles and our smart cars, into the areas around us, the, you know, the Internet of Things and all these sensor networks that are being installed, the smart cities. Uh, they are also going to be able to track us and track our behavior. And to a large extent, that already happens today uh, with closed-circuit television computer uh, um, cameras, but also with your smartphone. Your your smartphone is like a little brother in your pocket. It's constantly transmitting your whereabouts to devices that are listening. I don't mean to make people paranoid. I hope your listeners aren't disturbed by this. I'm not trying to disturb them, but I do think it's important for people to be aware of it. We're living in that fishbowl. It's not something in the future. It's happening right now. Now, what, what steps can you take to deal with that? Well, the first step that you might take is to become a little bit more aware of your information hygiene. How much information do you want to give away? 
do you always want to be using the same email address for everything, or should you maybe set up two different email accounts, one for junk mail, one where you sign up for subscriptions for free stuff, and another one that's like your private account so you can keep those clear? Maybe you should use a VPN. Uh, maybe you should install an ad blocker. Maybe you should take steps to protect the, the sovereignty of your own personal data. No one else is going to do it for you. And yeah, I guarantee yeah, yeah. you, no Western government is going to intervene so and protect you. So that personal responsibility is I quite think critical. so. If you're going to use these tools and you're going to participate in this medium, you're responsible for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you see um, oh, uh, any major kind of cultural differences? I'm assuming sort of different cultures deal with... Yeah, so uh, certainly you know, there's a huge contrast in China uh, where the government plays a big role in the Internet. They also censor content, and they track consumer, they, citizen behaviors, track and actually score. They have a social credit score system in China right now. So that's, that's a big difference. I don't think the Western countries would accept that. Um, that said, how different is it really in the United States where we know that our national security agencies are listening in and if the U.S. security agencies aren't allowed to listen to their own citizens, then we do a deal with Five Eyes where we let the Australians and the British monitor our citizens and we'll monitor theirs and swap the data. Is that really that different from what the yeah, Chinese okay. are doing? I think it's a, it's a safe assumption right now that um, most of what you're doing on the Internet, someone else is paying attention to. It might be a marketer. It might be a data scraper. Somebody aggregates data. It might be a government. And it might be a dark side hacker. But chances are very good that something you're doing on the internet is being observed by other people. Okay. So if we wrap the, this discussion up, but just, okay. um, you start off talking about you as a, a boy. What, what, what's your sort of what, what? What do we need to teach our children? What, what, what do we need the, to teach what, our what children? What do we need to teach our children? What's, what's the big sort of oh, seed you, um, you sort of be sort of informing? Whether that's about the careers of the future, or whether that's sort of maybe beyond sort of just protecting their kind of. Um, their, their data. What, what, what do you think they, yeah, they should so, be thinking? And those about? are good things to do. You know, good social media etiquette and so forth. That's a good thing to do. Um, good data practices are a good thing to do. But here's what I would emphasize: we're moving into a world that is a do-it-yourself world. Much depends on the decisions you make. The decisions that you make early on are going to impact what you're able to do in the future. Um, the temptation. Our consumer society, our consumer economy is always going to tempt you with an easy gratification, an instant gratification. And there's a lot of that out there, and it can be in the form of entertainment, it can be in the form of a game, it can be in the form of you know junk food. There's a million ways to get instant gratification. I think it's really important to teach kids the discipline to delay instant gratification and instead invest more effort in themselves in learning and mastering skills. And the skills that we need in the future are very different from the skills that we've been taught in school. We need skills now, like the ability to distinguish between good information and bad information, the ability to determine the source of information, whether or not that's a credible source. Just because someone shared it or posted it or commented on it doesn't necessarily mean it's credible information. And also, well, how much of that information do you consume? Maybe there's information obesity. You know, some people are out there just devouring all kinds of information. That's another form of junk food. Uh, the junk that you put in your mind is as bad as the junk that you put in your body. So I think it's important for us to elevate um, our young people's thinking about the media they consume, how they consume it, how often they consume it, how much of it they put in their brains, and how much they let that influence them. The flip side of that is having a very clear understanding of yourself and what you're interested in and what your goals are, where you want to be in your own life, and having the self-determination and the resourcefulness to understand that you can achieve those goals and get out there and do it. Now, here's what's really exciting. Every single week, I talk to entrepreneurs 
who are making that decision for themselves. They have a clear vision of what they want to create, and they understand the tools are available, the resources are available. They go out and get them, and they launch their businesses. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to be working with 30 small businesses here, fledgling companies based in Adelaide. I'm going to be coaching them with a team of 20 entrepreneurs, mentors, local mentors, and international mentors. We're going to find six companies in that group, and we're going to present them on stage at the, at the Hybrid World Conference on Monday afternoon. We're going to show people that even here in Adelaide, there are entrepreneurs who have the resourcefulness and the vision to create their own businesses. This is the part of the show that I'm most proud of. Last year we did this, and it was incredibly gratifying to see the transformation in these small businesses. Small companies, actually many of them didn't have much confidence on the first day, but by the second day they were battle-hardened and they were quite good, <laughs> and then we had kind of a smackdown where they did presentations with each other, and, uh, and we had kind of a bake-off or a comp competitive bake-off. And we gave out $80,000 in, in grants for small businesses. Uh, we're going to do the same thing starting tomorrow here in Adelaide. And it's the part of hybrid world that I think is really going to be the most impactful. Because just watch, in a few years, you're going to start to see alumni from that startup lab. And they're going to be coaching and mentoring the next generation of startup companies. That's one of the things I'm most excited about. That, that's, that's, that's very exciting. And, and thank you so much for your time, Pleasure Robert. Is there any um, best way to find you on social media or Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Superplex, but the, you, you can also check out my own website, which is just robertturcic.com, one word. Right. Thank you so much. Have a great hybrid world and uh, time in Adelaide. All thank you very much. It's a pleasure to meet you. Hey, Jason here. Just to say goodbye until next time, please do not forget to subscribe to Real People via iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. While you're there, please leave a review. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday same time emails, topics from market research to human-centred design, innovation, entrepreneurialism, a uh, whole lot of different topics by articles by me, Square Holes team, special guests from Justin Wilden to Steve Sammartino, Lisa Domenico, Elaine Steed, uh, been quite popular, very committed every week for the last 18 months or so. Please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and to join the email list. You can also follow me via Jason Dunstone on Twitter or your favourite social media. Thank you for listening. Aroo.